Let's bow one more time as we ask God's blessing now on the preaching and teaching of his word to our hearts and minds. Father, thank you for the privilege to open the book of God to the people of God today. We ask for your anointing to speak with clarity and with power and with love and that we will hear and be transformed by your word because we came this way today for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you've been here for the last several weeks, I hope by now you realize what biblical justice is. If you've not been here, I hope you can log on to our website and listen via our free podcast, the messages that have been recorded and uploaded for you. I also hope that you understand how important it is to God and how important it must be to us this issue of biblical justice. I hope also that you've come to understand that some cases of justice, whether social justice or retributive justice or distributive justice, they're quite complex and therefore needs a nuanced approach. There's no easy solutions in some cases that require a just response. And justice on earth, as much as we seek to do it right, will never be perfect because we are fallible human beings with limitations of knowledge and wisdom and power. But we serve a mighty God who sits high up in heaven and he looks low down to the earth. And from his vantage point, there is no hidden truth, there are no secrets. There are no limitations of time, money, power, or authority. And there is coming a day when he will execute perfect justice on the earth as it is in heaven. But that's no excuse to sit by and do nothing now. Despite our limitations, we Christians are called to do justice whenever and wherever we can with whatever resources God has placed into our hands. But the question that keeps haunting me is this, what will be our greatest motivation to pursue justice? What will be the trigger that actually takes the knowledge we now have about biblical justice and then puts it into practice? I sometimes make the joke saying that Pastor Mark and I, we get paid to be good, the rest of you are good for nothing. But really, all kidding aside, is it enough to listen to five talks or sermons about justice without doing something about it? Dr. Arthur Leff, former Yale Law School professor, wrote this. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anyone or anything should. Many of you have been very kind to tell me how much you are enjoying this series of messages on justice. Some of you have said it's made you rethink justice. Some have commented on how well balanced the teaching has been. But what God wants to know, and this preacher does too, what we want to know is this, have these messages on gracious justice made you more just? 
Has it moved you to seek justice, to pursue justice, to do justice on behalf of the weak, the poor, the alienated, or any others who have experienced injustice? And given how complex some issue of justice are, and knowing how much it will cost us to do justice sometimes, these obstacles make doing justice very difficult and very intimidating. And therefore, we need a very strong motivation to overcome these difficult obstacles that block the way of justice. In his excellent book, Gracious Justice, Pastor Tim Keller offers two of the most compelling reasons any Christian has for doing justice. The first is joyful awe as we contemplate the goodness of God's creation. The second is humility and gratitude as we experience personal redemption by God's grace. You may be asking yourself, what in the world does joyful awe of God's creation have to do with the motivation to do justice? Well, see if you can follow my logic here. We believe as Christians that God is sacred, do we not? Therefore, there is a certain reverential fear or respect that is due him. God teaches us in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that we human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, to be made in God's image is in part to share some of his sacredness. In other words, when God made us apart from all, everything else that he made, we are the only, of all the creatures and creation of God, we are the only ones that share his divine image. That is a part of God's sacredness that, that we have that none other of his creation has. Every human being is to have a certain reverential respect for every other human being simply because we are each made in the image of God. And that is why God commanded us not to murder each other. In fact, Jesus went on beyond that. He said, we must not even verbally curse each other because to curse or to hate your fellow human being is to rob them of the due respect that we owe them because they are made in God's image. Keller says that the image of God carries with it the right not to be mistreated or harmed by another human being. In Psalm 145, God says that he loves all that he has made. Therefore, who are we to mistreat or to hate anyone or anything that God has made? Again, Keller writes, so we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for their majesty and their owner and creator. Did you know that this theological truth, the imago Dei, that is the image of God, was the central driving force for the civil rights movement? Did you know that? Listen to what Dr. Martin Luther King said about the imago Dei. He says, quote, it means, it gives men uniqueness. It gives him worth, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. 
Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant in God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might, end quote. So the image of God is the first and great motivation for gracious justice. The second is the grace of God. The grace of God as experienced in our personal salvation or redemption. How do you understand the grace of God? One person put it this way, in the form of an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Think about it. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we get all of God's riches at none of the cost. We get heaven forever, streets of gold, walls of emeralds, diamonds, rubies, and sapphires, gates of pearls, our sins forgiven, peace, joy, purpose, and meaning in life, an eternal, unbreakable relationship with God, all of this and much more infinitely more. We get all of this, though we could never in a million years afford any of it. It was all purchased 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And furthermore, you and I did nothing and could never do anything to earn it, and we sure don't deserve it. That's grace. And Christianity is the only religion that teaches the unmerited grace and mercy of God. All other religions teach that we must do something to earn God's favor, and that's why there is so little justice and so much pride and arrogance and hatred. There is so little justice because people think, they don't deserve my help. If only they would learn to help themselves. If only they were more like me, they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in now. If they just disciplined themselves and studied harder and worked harder and practiced delayed gratification and stopped having babies out of wedlock, then I might lift a finger to help them. What if God thought like that concerning you? Do you think that you would have been good enough to earn his grace and deserve his mercy? Not even close. You know why? Because God's standard uh, is perfection. And you and I fall far short of his perfection every time and every day. That's why the Bible says there is none who is righteous, no, not even one, save Christ. Let me see if we can illustrate this truth with another verse from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's a simple verse. Matthew 5, verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? 
It means to be morally or spiritually bankrupt. It means that your good deeds check won't cash with God. You haven't banked enough good deeds to pay what is required to enter the kingdom of God. And so, why does Jesus say, blessed is the poor in spirit? What's so blessed about being poor in spirit? Well, it means that you readily admit that you don't have the spiritual wealth required to pay your entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you humbly seek God to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. Tim Keller made the most insightful point here. He says, what if you were middle class or wealthy in spirit? Jesus knew that there were those in his presence who thought of themselves as middle class or wealthy in spirit. Those were the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees. They believed that they were better than most because they had kept the religious rules and laws, or so they thought. And so they connected the dots in their minds between their spiritual successes and positions in the temple and the synagogue with their material success and wealth. They felt as if they had earned their spiritual standing in high social class positions due to their own disciplined efforts. And so they thought of themselves better than most people. And that is why Jesus told them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember who the unjust characters were in the story? The unjust characters were the Pharisees and Sadducees, or the Levite, who rather than stopping to administer justice to the man who was beaten, robbed, and left for dead, they crossed over the other side of the street and went right by him on the other side of the road. Maybe they were late for prayer meeting. Or they had to make a sacrificial offering at the temple. But it was a Samaritan man. Remember those hated Gentile foreigners? It was him who Jesus made the hero of the story. And it infuriated the Jewish leaders. They knew that Jesus had judged their hearts rightly. He nailed them. You see, those who are self-righteously middle class or wealthy in spirit tend to care less about the poor and others who have suffered injustice. But those who are poor in spirit, when they see a poor person in dirty rags with smelly odors, they will tend to see themselves and think, all of my self-righteousness is like filthy rags to God. But in Christ, he has clothed me in robes of righteousness. And I did not, nothing to earn it or to deserve it. I wonder what I can do to help this person in need right now. That's what the person who is poor in spirit thinks when they see a person in need. Let's move on to the epistle or letter of James. James chapter 1. Again, two simple verses. James 1, 9 and 10. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. Now, I've read these two verses for years and never really understood 
the full implications of them, especially in this area of gracious justice. This is one of those paradoxes of Scripture that needs a bit of explaining, and once again, I am indebted to Dr. Tim Keller for helping us here. James is speaking to two kinds of people in the congregation. The poor Christian man and the rich Christian man, both brothers in Christ. He honors the poor one first by addressing him first, and he basically says to the poor Christian man, look, look, bro, listen, despite your poverty and the way people in this world look down on you, always remember and never forget in Christ you're at the top. You are an heir of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and everything that is his is now also yours. You will inherit an eternal heavenly kingdom despite your earthly poverty. But to the rich brother in Christ, James says this, hey dude, let me tell you something. I know that you got it made in the eyes of the world. Many doors open for you and you're well respected and you get all the invitations to hang out with the muckety mucks, the who's who of society, but check it. You were nothing but a low-down, dirty scumbag full of sin when Jesus found you, all right? With all your money and big house and nice cars and big bank account, you were a low-down, dirty scumbag when Jesus found you and saved you. You should take pride and boast only in Jesus despite your worldly wealth. And check this too. You're going to die and pass away and leave all your earthly wealth behind, but wait till you see your riches in heaven purchased by Christ alone, which you had nothing to do with. See, now that's humbling for somebody who thinks they got it all down here. So you see, the world's got it twisted. The world says a person's worth is determined by their zip code, their skin color, their bank account balance, their title, their position, their achieved success. And of course, for those who don't achieve those earthly signs of success, you know what often happens to them? Their dignity is crushed. They lose hope. They, they suffer despair. But I've got good news for those of you who have lost hope and suffered despair. The good news is that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ tells you that you are not defined by what you have achieved or failed to achieve. You can't be counted out because of the low balance in your account. You are infinitely and unconditionally loved and accepted by Almighty God because he stamped his image on your soul and he sent his son to die for you and to reclaim your soul to be his forever. And no matter, you matter to us because you matter to God. You matter because God made you and he put his stamp of approval and image on your soul. When God made all the creatures of the earth, all the trees of the field and the seas, the oceans, the river, the stars, and you know what he said? It was good. But you know what he said when he made you? 
I am really good. God looked at the, the, the solar system, which is incredibly magnificent. He looked at the majestic mountains and rivers and said, that's good. But when he saw what he made you, he said, that's really good. And some of you think poorly of yourself because of what you have not yet achieved or what you lack or what you don't have and you're overlooking the most important thing that you have, which is the image of God. It is not guilt, but the gracious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that ought to motivate us most to seek justice for those who have suffered injustice. And when we consider how much we have received from God and how undeserving we were and remain, we will have mercy on others and seek justice for them and walk humbly with our God. In closing, I want to share one more verse of Scripture and an excerpt from an old Scottish preacher. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Again, a simple verse. Acts, 30, or Acts 20, verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the Apostle Paul had spent much time shepherding the young church in Ephesus. And when it was time for him to leave and to move on to other apostolic work, he called the elders of the Ephesian church together and these were some of the last words he spoke to them. He admitted to them that the work of doing justice on behalf of the weak is hard work. But Paul exemplified that work for them to use as an inspiration. And then as motivation, he reminded them of the words and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I think Jesus had in mind when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I've been challenging us to consider how much grace and mercy we've already received from our Lord Jesus and what a blessing it is to have received so much of it. Without cost to us and without deserving it, right? As great a blessing as it was to have received so much from our loving Heavenly Father through our sacrificial Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it is a greater blessing to give. Now that, that ought to blow us away. And who would know more about giving than him who gave up his life for us while we were yet Sinners, rebelling, shaking our fists, spitting in his face. The greatest person who ever lived gave the greatest gift that was ever given, and now he's telling those of us who have received that great blessing to become givers ourselves. And he says it's even greater to give than to receive. Talk about a paradox. That will make you scratch and shake your head.
SMH, shaking my head. You see, most of us think just the opposite, like the world does. We think the more we save and the more we hoard God's blessings, the happier we will be. No. No, no. You know why? Because God's blessings are like manna. Do you remember manna in the Old Testament? The most important thing to remember about manna was that it was a daily, it was daily given and it was to be daily shared and consumed. There was no saving it up for tomorrow or next week. That was to teach the children of God to trust Him, to trust God for their daily needs every day. And so what time, talents, and treasures has God entrusted to you? Don't hoard them. Share them with those in need daily. Don't be surprised if you try hoarding them that they spoil and become useless even to you, to whom they were entrusted. Because the Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we will never do justice until we grasp that principle of giving. Now listen to the old Scottish preacher. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Objection. My money is my own. Answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet. That most would despise it. That many would make it an excuse for sinning more. And yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians. If you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely the, to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. 
Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. End quote. And another word for blessing is happy. Happy. So many of us are searching for happiness in life. And we cling to the very blessings of God to be given. And that is the pathway of happiness. But we tend to hoard and cling to it. It's mine. My time. My life. My money. My schedule. My stuff. God says, you got it twisted. It's not yours. It's mine. And I've entrusted them to you to be a steward, to manage it, and to use it to make a difference in somebody else's life, to bless others. So that through you, they might see me and worship me and come to me and find me. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's stand to worship our living Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This is God's time of invitation. What has God spoken to your heart this morning? You know, worship is a response to the reveal will of God. To reveal to the revealed word of God. To the revealed heart of God. And when we respond in a way that is appropriate, we have worshiped him. And so what is your response today? Some of you here, maybe you need to be saved. There's no way in the world that you're going to act justly and walk humbly with God unless you are saved. By that I mean you need to humble yourself and repent of your sins and ask Christ to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to save you. Others of you need to be baptized. You need to follow the first commandment that Christ gave to his believers, his followers. He said, to be baptized. First repent, then be baptized. If you've never been baptized, we'd love to talk with you about baptism and what it means for the believer to follow in Jesus' command and example to be baptized. We'd love to schedule a baptism service for you. Others of you are looking for a church home. We encourage you. Church doors are open for you today. And you'll have an opportunity to respond and to join our membership class and check us out before you decide to join to see what we're all about. We're not perfect, but we are a hospital for sinners who need God's grace. So if you're perfect, you need to go down the road to the next church, but not here. Because there ain't no perfect people here, but we are saved by God's grace. And we seek to love as we have been loved. And maybe you're here today and you, your response is, Lord, make me more just. 
I have not been as just as I ought to be. Maybe you have been too self-righteous, too condescending, too prideful and arrogant, and you need to be rectified in your thinking of yourself. In relationship to others, in relationship to God, and maybe your response today is to simply humbly repent of your arrogance and your pride. And to say, God, oh, forgive me. Cleanse me. Help me to recognize how much grace I need every single day so that I might be gracious to others and rightly, justly relate to them in a way that honors the image of God in them. And so whatever your response needs to be, after I've dismissed us, the word of benediction, I'm going to encourage you to just go to the back and that through that center archway will be to your left in the back of the sanctuary. You'll find some deacons there waiting to pray with you, to encourage you, to give you instruction as to what your next steps ought to be regarding salvation, baptism, membership, or just being more just according to the scriptures. Father, thank you for this time with your precious people and your precious word. I pray that we would indeed be more just. Forgive us, cleanse us, have mercy on us. For we are sinners indeed. And help us to show grace as we have been shown. Help us to love as we have been loved by you. Help us to forgive those who have sinned against us, just like you forgave us who sinned against you. Help us to be generous with the many gifts you've given to us because you have been infinitely generous to us. Help us not to think of who deserves what. Because you didn't think that way about us. God, help us in our thinking. Our thinking is so tainted and polluted by the world's way of thinking. Help us to think more like you. So that we might live more like you. For Christ's sake, amen.